Welcome to Wisdom, Love, and Beauty, a podcast for the soul and the home of dangerous wisdom. This is Dr. Nikos, your friendly neighborhood soul doctor, and today's contemplation is a good example of dangerous wisdom in its two aspects. First, we'll consider the dangerous ideas that can spread when someone takes a fragment of philosophical insight, when someone takes partially correct but misleading and ultimately incoherent opinions and presents them as truth. Because wisdom is what works, these fragmented opinions will have real traction and they will seem true. But because they're fragmented and not rooted in wisdom, love, and beauty, we end up creating dangerous negative side effects. So fragments of wisdom present a danger to ourselves and others. That's important to keep in mind that the negative side effects, the negative consequences to the ideas that we have that seem true but are only fragments of wisdom. The other aspect of dangerous wisdom we could call wisdom in its fullness and it's equally important. The danger of wisdom in its fullness usually scares us a lot more than wisdom in its fragmented and incoherent state, so it feels more dangerous even though the fragmented stuff presents the real danger in terms of creating harms in the world. Fragments of wisdom appeal to our ego. That's why we seek them. That's why we cling to them. And that's what makes them spread. We find them appealing even at an unconscious level. Because they involve at least a fragment of wisdom, we often find the ideas associated with this kind of dangerous wisdom in the negative sense, we often find them effective. And more importantly, they allow us to keep our ego happy and keep the structures of power in our culture firmly in place. Fragmented wisdom presents no real danger to structures of power and oppression. And that is a key thing to keep in mind. But wisdom in its fullness does present that kind of danger. So we have to take good care of it. And we have to be careful around it, lest it turn into dangerous wisdom in the negative sense. As we try to draw on wisdom in its fullness to critique fragmented and incoherent opinions, we practice the good kind of dangerous wisdom. But because that kind of wisdom can threaten our ego and threaten the structures of power in our culture, we face a lot of challenges. Not least of which that we have to think against the grain of our own culture, which is not easy because we get indoctrinated into our culture from an early age and there are unconscious ideas that have us in their grips. Now, fortunately, we'll have the wisdom traditions to help us here. Our contemplation relates to a lot of issues in business and the general self-help catastrophe. Capitalism and business are part of the self-help catastrophe, not merely because huge sums of money are involved in the self-help industrial complex, though that's true enough, but also because business and capitalism in general cannot function without the self-help industry. 
Why not? Because the basic meaning of economics and business in the dominant culture amounts to something unhealthy for all of us. And people cannot keep going without coaches, self-help gurus, wellness retreats, mind hacking tricks, all manner of apparatus to help them keep plugging along. Many people would never become wealthy. They wouldn't even bother, let alone succeed, without the tricks and hacks we find in the self-help industry. And much of it is geared quite specifically to entrepreneurs and executives and people we refer to as thought leaders. We can't keep this catastrophe going without lots of fragments of wisdom to buoy it up, to placate our ego, to keep us plugging along. Our focus in this particular contemplation relates to things like mission statements, corporate culture, corporate responsibility, mindset hacking, and related notions. And in particular, if you can tell by the title and if you're familiar with part of the reference of the title for this contemplation, we clearly have in mind the suggestion that if we want to succeed, we need to start with why. In relation to this, we'll examine some of the manipulative memes in our culture, many of which are captured in the idea or the theory that we should start with why. And let's be clear, this is not just a critique of that idea or that theory. Rather, we'll use the start with why theory to learn something about the structure of our experience and also learn about the problems of our culture and how we might begin to live in a way that heals the wounds in our own bodies, our own minds, our hearts, while also healing the wounds we've created in our culture, in other cultures, and in the world. We'll try to come to several important realizations, and it'll take us more than one contemplation to get to all these things. Some of these realizations relate to other possible titles we could give this contemplation. For one thing, we could have called this contemplation, please don't start with why. We'll see that the wisdom traditions around the world usually don't start with why. Rather, they start with what. We'll also clarify the meaning of why so that we can come to see that we cannot start with why. That's another possible title. You can't start with why. Finally, we'll come to see that before we start with why, why already started with us. And that both feeds back into the importance of not starting with why, and it echoes the title we do have, Before You Start With Why. The secrets of true and meaningful success in our lives have to do with the things that come before why, and also totally together with why. One thing we can note right away is that the start with why theory seems to be mainly a matter of business propaganda. That might seem a little harsh or heavy handed, but the theory presents itself as a discovery. And at one point, the author even suggests that the theory could somehow have been patented or copyrighted in some way. But that's very misleading, or maybe it just comes from not knowing about the wisdom traditions because the wisdom traditions have worked 
with the underlying principles of the book for thousands of years. It's not a new idea. Now, we really can't blame the author for not knowing this. As Thoreau famously put it, there are nowadays professors of philosophy, but not philosophers. We don't find real philosophy in our education system. It's not widely available or easily accessible in the culture. Sure, we can Google things and we can go to the library. We have to know what to look for. So the start with why theory could have seemed like a genuine discovery, akin to thinking we had invented the wheel or something like that. It seems we need a lot of clarity about how much is missing from the start with why theory. It largely functions as a manifesto of spiritual materialism. And it not only lacks genuine wisdom, but it ends up limiting us and even setting us up for harm, setting the world up for harm. Now, that might sound extreme, but we'll get some clarity about that as we go along. Suffice it to say, the harms are quite real. And all we have to do is engage in a little critical thinking to discover them. And as for the limitations the th start with why theory forces on us as human beings, that comes in large part from the fact that the power of why and its relation to what we do and how we do it has to do with the structure of all our experience and not merely about how brands get customers to buy their products. There's something much more profound and important. From a business standpoint, the start with why theory seems to be largely about motivating and inspiring people to make us rich. Really, at the end of the day, we're looking for some kind of material success and it's about how companies became successful. And the general way this gets handled marks a significant divergence from what the wisdom traditions of the world teach us, and that matters. Whether we see ourselves as religious and we turn to figures in our religious tradition or we feel more inclined to non-theistic philosophies. Either way, we can all immediately understand that we shouldn't take an ignorant approach to life, to anything. If what we find in self-help or business books conflicts in a significant way with the wisdom traditions, it behooves us to pause and ask if we have somehow gotten hooked by ignorance in nice clothing. Now we find a basic idea in self-help that when people get motivated by why, success happens all by itself. And this confuses and conflates things. Why is not primarily about inspiring people in this way. Inspiration sounds great, we all love it, we, we are addicted to the notion in some ways. But we have to get more intimate with what inspiration is. The start with why theory doesn't really help us do that. One of the things that it does do is feed our spiritual materialism under the guise of giving us inspiration. So it does make us feel inspired, but it's all together with this spiritual materialism. We could go so far as to call it a manifesto for spiritual materialism in a consumer culture. Now, what does that mean? If you haven't come across the term spiritual materialism, it's just the psychological process, and also it's a cultural process, by which we turn a spiritual or philosophical value into its opposite. That's one way we could define it. Generally speaking, our spiritual and philosophical values move us toward liberation, insight, attunement with reality, 
and transcendence of self-centeredness. But we can take a spiritual value, and our culture can facilitate this, and we can rationalize and manipulate that value so that we end up creating bondage, ignorance, delusion, and self-centeredness, all in the good name of our values. That's the key. Consciously, we proclaim alignment with our values, but in living fact, we transgress them and often bring about their opposite. Instead of liberation, further bondage. Instead of insight and wisdom, further ignorance and delusion. Instead of self-transcendence, we cultivate self-centeredness. Obvious cases of spiritual materialism include the use of Christian ideals to carry out the crusades and the witch hunts and also the takeover of Turtle Island. Also includes the use of Buddhist ideals in Japan during World War II. But we encounter this sort of thing all the time. It's pervasive. People will often use the veneer of spirituality or nice philosophical ideas to cover over the ways they avoid allowing their spiritual or philosophical tradition to rid them of delusion and self-centeredness. For instance, in the dominant culture, yoga has more to do with physical fitness and socialization and following brands than it does with spiritual development. The many expensive yoga brands and yoga retreats do a great deal to feed into the economy, and they often do much, much less as far as attuning people with reality and reducing self-centered activity. It's not to say that yoga is somehow bad across the board. It's to say that there's a lot going on that would qualify as spiritual materialism rather than the spiritual pursuit of yogic ideals as they are taught in the philosophical systems of the East. The culture in general does almost everything it can to seduce us into spiritual materialism because our culture is threatened, the dominant culture is threatened by our spiritual and philosophical values. Most of us can agree that things could be much better in the dominant culture and in the world, especially as we contemplate the incredible economic inequality and the astonishing ecological degradation. What few of us seem to realize and talk about sufficiently is that we could make things far better just by coming together in the common ground of wisdom, love, and beauty that already exists in our various wisdom traditions. We don't need the triumph of Christianity or liberal thinking. We just need to practice and realize our own highest values and stop rationalizing our own and the culture's behavior. The Start With Why theory does a lot to empower spiritual materialism. It does this in a variety of ways, but centrally we could say that it makes us think that the success we see in certain material enterprises comes from the way those enterprises root themselves in values that matter, and also that it just gives us this idea that we could fulfill our values in the marketplace somehow. That that's, that's what we do if we want to succeed. We just stay connected to our highest values and then we'll go out and we'll become economically successful, materially successful. Now the suggestion has two edges to it. On the, on the one hand, it implies that wealthy and successful people got that way 
because they had real vision and values, the kinds of values that we ourselves might embrace. And secondly, it implies that we could bring our own values to fulfillment in the present economy. And I know I, it's just another way of saying what I just said a moment ago, but that last part is important because if you have any concern that your highest values are at odds with the dominant culture, the start with why theory implies that you can just set those fears aside. The culture doesn't need any fundamental shift because our values are what can make us rich and successful. Nor does the fundamental style of thinking that we have and that the culture has, that fundamental style of thinking doesn't have to be adjusted. It's not uh, just that uh, we should give up our style of thinking, we just have to pursue the right agenda. You see, that's a very important point. That's a very big question. Is it that we just don't have the right agendas and if we had the right agendas, the success would come automatically? Or is it that the style of consciousness that thinks it should pursue its own agendas and force, force them onto the world, that that way of thinking is problematic? We might be deluding ourselves by thinking, well, I just need to have a nice enough agenda. And if it's nice, and if it's rooted in values, then it, it'll be fine. Everything will work out. The wisdom traditions don't think so. Moreover, in our cultural context, this doesn't have any logical connection to whether people succeed. For instance, plenty of people have had the dream of making money and they didn't seem to need much beyond that motivation in order to do it. Rockefeller was one of the richest men in U.S. history, especially if we convert his wealth into today's dollars. It makes it much more clear how wealthy he was, astonishingly rich. And he didn't seem to have had anything like an inspired vision. The same seems true of J. Paul Getty, who in an interview made it clear that becoming rich is no different than doing anything else. If you want to be a ballet dancer, you focus on it, you make it happen. You want to be rich, you just focus on being rich. He didn't talk about having any vision for humanity or being rooted in wisdom or compassion or anything like that. Rockefeller, Getty, and many others who became wealthy or famous sought nothing more than a path to becoming wealthy or famous. The inspiration to make money or become famous is not considered wise, but in this context, in the context of the dominant culture, it functions perfectly well. The bottom line is that making money does not depend on any noble or spiritual intentions. And in fact, our spiritual and philosophical traditions teach us that seeking wealth is antithetical to seeking wisdom, love, and beauty. We don't get to wisdom, love, or beauty through money or fame. And only deluded thinking would have us believe that. Believe that we could do so. Nor, of course, does our income reflect our level of wisdom, our capacity for love, or our sense of beauty. It should go without saying, but there's something weird going on in the Start With Why theory and the stories that it tells. It's as if there's some kind of logical connection between things that the philosophical or spiritual traditions would tell us to value as intentions and success in the material world. 
in this, again, this context, because of course those traditions agree that wisdom, love, and beauty will lead to success in our life, but in a far grander way than making money. Wisdom, love, and beauty, after all, are what we actually value. Only these things can make us happy. We might think of them in various ways. We might think of them in terms of our family, helping the world, following the divine, being joyful and at peace, truly accepting ourselves. However we might put it, we know in our hearts that we will find fulfillment only in spiritual or philosophical things, not in the pursuit of material success. And yet material success seems part of the motivation for starting with why, because this advice is targeted in large part at entrepreneurs and other business people. And the coaching and self-help industry have focused a lot on these and related ideas as part of making people materially successful. The Start With Why theory considers a variety of examples of the theory in action, and it unfortunately associates the noble work of people like Martin Luther King Jr. with the activities of corporations like Apple and Southwest Airlines. Among other things, the book tells us about the history of airplanes. In the Start With Why theory, two major figures competed to become the first to achieve controlled flight. A man named Sam Langley and, of course, Wilbur Wright, or we should say the Wright brothers, so we could say two teams, the Wright brothers team and the Sam Langley team. The theory claims that Langley had every advantage. He was famous, well-educated, well-connected, and he had a much larger budget. The Wright brothers had little formal education, had far less money, nobody knew them. The theory claims that Langley had the recipe for success and the Wright brothers had a recipe for failure. How then, how is it possible that the Wright brothers won out? The Start With Why theory claims that the Wright brothers won simply because of their vision, their sense of purpose, their why. The theory claims the Wright brothers had some sort of noble passion for flight, but Langley simply wanted fame and fortune. The theory tells us that the Wright brothers had a dream, and that was all they needed. By implication, if we have a dream, and if we have a noble intention, and we start with why, we too can become a success against all odds. In other words, we have here yet another version of the Horatio Alger story so popular in the dominant culture, and it's tremendously misleading. For one thing, even a cursory glance into the Wright brothers' lives gives us every indication that they did, in fact, have a great advantage. Indeed, Orville Wright himself insisted on it. Some journalist, alive at his time, tried to do exactly what the Start With Why theory does. The journalist tried to foist the Horatio Alger story onto the Wright boys. The journalist said that the Wright brothers showed us the American dream in action. They had no money, no connections, no special advantages. 
and Orville Wright rejected this. He himself said that it wasn't true. And I'll quote him. It isn't true to say we had no special advantages. We did have unusual advantages in childhood, without which I doubt we could have accomplished much. The greatest thing in our favor was growing up in a family where there was always much encouragement to intellectual curiosity. If my father had not been the kind who encouraged his children to pursue intellectual interests without any thought of profit, our early curiosity about flying would have been nipped too early to bear fruit. So that's Orville Wright trying to point out the incredible advantage. That's a rare thing. We should also mention that the Wright brothers had to come up with a thousand dollars worth of materials, which is about 28 grand in today's money. They didn't have zero money. You don't get a plane built with zero. But let's focus on their other advantages. Their father was apparently passionate about learning, and their mother was apparently a bit of a mechanical genius who had studied math and science in addition to literature, so she was probably familiar with the arts, and they had an aesthetic sensibility, but she had studied math and science in college, so she was college-educated. She even built toys for her children. The Wright boys may not have had a formal education. I'm not even sure they had high school diplomas, but that is not the only way to learn. With highly educated and intelligent parents, along with the discipline of self-learning, we can educate ourselves better on our own than we can in many universities. I say this from experience. I went all the way through to a PhD, and most of the time I found the university an impediment to my learning. I did most of my learning on my own and only got the degrees along the way as part of legitimizing that learning. It's just easier in this culture if you've got your little union card and you can say, yes, I put in the work at the time. The Wright brothers were probably what we would call autodidacts. They didn't have to have a formal uh, system to learn. And being autodidacts does not translate into a recipe for failure. The suggestion is silly. On the contrary, they had very, very special circumstances and advantages. Maybe Langley didn't have parents like that. We have no idea. We also don't know if Langley was exposed to flying machines or the study of flight as a child, because even as children, the Wright boys got a little flying machine as a toy, a little machine that could actually fly. And they studied bird anatomy and bird movement, and they applied what they learned from that to wing and control design. So the difference between Langley and the Wright brothers could in fact be called a difference in vision. But the vision here comes to something far more mundane than what the self-help industry tells us. Langley actually had the wrong vision of how flight works. That's the key issue here. Langley thought flight was stable, like a train on rails. He thought that once you got it started, it would just keep going. And he had it wrong. The Wrights simply had a clearer vision of flight. Not a better passion or a better why. They had studied birds, they had experience in building things, and they realized that flight is precarious. It didn't take 
necessarily any passion to notice that. It could be something accidental, but of course, they did have a lot of interest in learning. But realizing that flight is precarious, that simple notion, that unfolded everything. Langley is just headed in the wrong direction, whereas the Wright brothers realized there's a lot of work to do. Because once they understood that flight is precarious, they did something else that Langley didn't do, and that is they did a lot of painstaking mathematical physics. And Langley might have been capable of that, but he might not have realized how important it was. So Wilbur Wright, paired with one of the most intelligent people of his time, a man named Octave Chanute, and there is this suggestion in the Start With Why theory that Chanute himself said, you know, no one person is going to solve this. And the Start With Why theory is so bold as to suggest that he was wrong with that. That no, 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 you just needed to have the right passion. But first of all, the Wright brothers were a pair. And second of all, they consulted a man considered one of the most intelligent people of his time. And Wright exchanged 500 letters, 500 letters with Octave Chanute. Now that's a collaboration. Chanute was right. Nobody was going to solve it on their own. And he was one of the people who was crucial, arguably, to getting this done. And it might have been because he had more formal, formal training. That could have been a place where not having access to a university, they might not, the Wright brothers might not have had all the access to the math they needed. It's not clear. But it took this teamwork to work out the complex mathematics needed in order to get wing and control design done properly. So they were refining their vision of flight, their vision of reality. And in some ways, it might have seemed to many of us a very uninspiring kind of work. Now, the Wrights had already done other painstaking mathematical work like this. They did a lot of work on wind currents because they tried to get air pressure data from the Smithsonian, where Langley served as a senior officer, and they discovered it was full of errors. So they spent countless hours investigating wind, just wind. Why? Why did they do this? It turns out they did it for the same reason they wanted to fly. And here is the shocker. I don't know that it's in the Start With Why book. I didn't come across it. It appears that the main reason the Wright brothers did all this work on wind and on flying in general is just they thought it was fun. That's not a particularly noble intention. Of course, we should enjoy our lives, but as the main why, for a lot of people, making money is fun. That's the why for a lot of people. Being famous is fun. It's not really a why. It's not the kind of thing where we're being honest about what why could and should mean in our lives. The start with why theory suggests that the Wrights had some noble sense of what flying would mean for humanity or some other kind of important passion. And maybe they spoke about that at some point. But there are two major problems with even the suggestion that the Wrights had a vision, a real sense of vision, especially in relationship to flying. First of all, it seems rather clear that flying has done almost nothing, I think we could say nothing, flying has done nothing to make humanity fundamentally wiser, happier, more peaceful, more loving, healthier, more beautiful, graceful. Indeed, quite the opposite. Flying has created tremendous problems 
including making it easier to spread a pandemic virus. It has vastly increased pollution and helped us to degrade ecologies. People die in plane crashes who, if they weren't on airplanes, they wouldn't be crashing, they wouldn't be dying that way. It's made it possible to harm more people in wars. We could not have dropped nuclear bombs in Japan without airplanes. And there's all sorts of things that we do with airplanes that are ultimately destructive, either directly or indirectly. It's no surprise, of course, that the War Department is the, was the source of funding for Langley. He got $50,000 from the War Department. So there are real questions here. We're not suggesting that planes are inherently evil. That's silly. But we are trying to get serious about their impact. Once we drop all the romanticizing and rationalizing, we start to see that planes are not only problematic in a lot of ways, but really, as we look, they're, they're not very important. Airplanes are a far less important invention than washing machines, especially for, for instance, women around the world in a patriarchal culture. But for most of us, our washing machine is a much more important thing to have than the capacity to jump on an airplane. Not long ago, serious thinkers about the climate catastrophe we all face claimed that we might need to ground 95% of air traffic. Can you imagine that? That in order to be ecologically responsible, we have to ground 95% of air traffic. That's what a problem planes are, but no one wants to talk about it. We like planes. We like them. We want to be able to go to Paris or take our nice vacations. We want to do all these wonderful things with airplanes that we think are so good. But planes are not necessarily good for us and for the world, for the whole community of life. Moreover, again, to say it again, they do not make our lives better in any profound way, in any way that matters from the perspective of the wisdom traditions. And that means from the perspective of our highest values. I mean, we could consider it this way. Imagine the Wright brothers went to Socrates, Jesus, Buddha, the peacemaker, or some other world-turning sage. And imagine they said they wanted a meaningful motivation. Would any of these sages think that building airplanes somehow relates intimately with any motivation worth having? Did Jesus ever say, well, I can't really be a manifestation of the divine because we haven't invented airplanes yet? Did Buddha ever say, I can't be fully enlightened because I can't hop on an airplane and fly to a yoga retreat in Costa Rica? Did Socrates ever say, ever say I can't be wise because I can't fly to South America for an ayahuasca vacation? We're getting at the lack of vision the Wright brothers had, in part because they participated in creating something we still haven't got the wisdom, compassion, or grace to handle very well. But on top of that, what has pursuing flight got to do with making the world better or fulfilling our highest values? Planes currently cause a great deal of harm. Whether the Wright brothers simply wanted to have fun, which seems to be the case, it, just, it, it was fun to them, or whether they somehow thought that they were going to bring peace, love, and wisdom to the world, their vision seems to have been clouded. What might the Wright brothers have accomplished 
if all that energy and intelligence had been more rooted in wisdom, love, and beauty? What might they have done for the world if they had a more coherent vision? That's one reversal that we could make with the Start With Why theory. We could say that the Wright brothers lacked a full enough vision. And that this Start With Why theory, because it doesn't realize that and doesn't explain it to us, all it does is empower us to go out and fulfill our agendas, also without proper vision. And that will inevitably create real harms in the world. I mean, yes, maybe we can't foresee the harms. Maybe the Wright brothers couldn't foresee the harm of making an airplane. They just thought it was all good. But that's the problem with lacking vision. We get unintended consequences. And those unintended negative side effects often far outweigh the apparent goods that we wish to claim for what we're doing. On top of the fact that, again, what's so important about an airplane? For people who love airplanes, that's all well and good. But it's a matter of cultural context, the things that we happen to love. In the right culture, we'd love different things. And maybe we should be wondering what we are inviting ourselves to love. Are we loving the right things? Now, there's another reversal of the theory here. And it's a reversal in the basic question of why the Wright brothers succeeded while Langley failed. The real question here is, in some ways, the exact opposite of the one the start with why theory proposes. Now, let's go back to what the book asks, what the theory asks. The, the theory invites us to feel astonished that two brothers who came from highly supportive environment and who had spent a long time building things and thinking about birds in flight and thinking about the problem of flight from every angle, including analyzing wind currents and things like this, and who had not only a mechanical and mathematical bent that most of us couldn't touch, but also even an artistic sensibility. So we're supposed to feel astonished that these two, of all people, figured out how to fly an airplane, how to build a working airplane. We're supposed to be astonished. Why didn't Langley figure it out? Why didn't the guy who lacked all those incredible advantages figure it out? My goodness, what a puzzling question. The guy who had the wrong idea about how flight worked to begin with, he was somehow magically going to figure out something this complicated to do. The guy who might not have had this incredible childhood and this incredible capacity for mechanics and mathematics and the thrill of just wanting to find things out. He just wasn't raised maybe to have that. Why would we think that Langley was going to ever figure it out? Something genuinely complicated like this. It doesn't even make sense. It's not a real puzzle. It's not a problem. It's a total distraction. And it's a funnier question than we might at first think. You know, on reflection, we realize Langley had no shot to figure out something this complicated when he lacked the advantages that the Wright brothers had. But here's the trick. Here's what's so, so almost like ironic. It's this soul irony that in our cultural context, we actually realize there might be something to that question. Now, to make sense of that, let's ask something different. 
how is it possible that a washed-up businessman who went bankrupt five or six times, who couldn't even make money off of a casino, who went bankrupt running a casino of all things, a man who has a reputation for defaulting on loans and ripping people off and being crass and vulgar, how could such a person be considered a successful businessman? And how could such a person be elected president? And what is the motivation of that person who did succeed in becoming president beyond self-centeredness and seeking fame? This is a person who puts their name on things they don't even build, partly because maybe they don't know how. They don't have the capacity to build things. They simply brand themselves. They turn themselves into a brand, constantly seeking fame and fortune. And even though he's incredibly unskillful with money, he still manages to live way better than most of us. As if his lack of skill with money gets completely trumped by his capacity to lie and to seek fame. And he may yet get even richer, may actually become wealthy, perhaps for the first time really, after using the fame of the office of the president to leverage his self-centered agenda. What is the why at work there aside from self-centeredness and the quest for fame and profit? That's where suddenly it gets Serious when we ask, hey, wait, Langley, he had a lot of money behind him. He had connections. Why didn't it work? Because we know that in this culture, that's sometimes all it takes. You don't need any noble intention. Now, why is it that the rare politician with noble intent so often fails? Why is it that the rare cultural figure who most publicly seeks peace and justice so often gets murdered? Those are more realistic questions for our context, not some false puzzle about the Wright brothers. If we lived in a larger cultural context in which learning, fun, and cooperation were properly rooted in wisdom, love, and beauty, we might develop all sorts of things that could actually help the world and with far fewer negative side effects. Part of this whole story is something tragically absent from the start with why theory. We find this tension between motivation in the spiritual and philosophical traditions on the one hand and motivation as it gets fed to us in the propaganda of the culture. In the wisdom traditions, true vision or a real spiritual sense of why has to do with the very structure of our experience and our own direct insight into the nature of reality. Now that means the sense of why in these traditions differs radically from the sense of why in the start with why theory, even though that theory admittedly contains fragments of truth or wisdom, correct opinion from those traditions. The wisdom traditions invite us to experience a vision of the cosmos as a whole. We could use the term wonderstanding 
to refer to a profound intimacy with the cosmos. That differs from understanding. Understanding is intellectual, conceptual. Understanding comes from direct experience. We often need to begin with understanding. But we want to move to something even more intimate and at the same time cosmic. The cosmic level is completely lacking in the Start With Why propaganda. Every philosophical, spiritual, or religious tradition orients us with a basic sense of the cosmos. And I could say it's not that this sense of the cosmos is lacking, it's that it's extraordinarily limited in the Start With Why theory. But this basic sense of the cosmos is the first dimension of why. The reason we do anything in part has to do with what we think the basic nature of reality is. Because we would never try to operate against reality, at least not consciously, or else we'd see our activity as crazy. If we do that all the time. We engage in, in a kind of insanity. But usually not consciously. Now we're touching on a major problem with the start with why approach, and that is it doesn't offer us any wisdom about the nature of reality itself. There's not a real cosmic vision rooted in wisdom, love, and beauty. Instead, the start with why theory operates within the craziness of the dominant culture, which is not in accord with reality. We all have things we like and enjoy in the dominant culture. We may love our lattes, our laptops, our vacations to Tahiti, our electric cars, all sorts of things. But it only takes a little careful reflection to notice the deadly incoherence and insanity of this culture. The way we grow food degrades soil. The way we live degrades ecologies. Tremendous incoherence. The way we organize our economy creates massive inequality and injustice. That's incoherence. Our whole way of life has created extinctions, toxicity, and degradation. And it perpetuates and even deepens certain kinds of injustice and inequality. Now, saying these sorts of things amounts to dangerous wisdom because it threatens the logic of the culture. And so plenty of people don't want to hear it. It's written off as crazy itself. That's a great irony because we're pointing out incoherence and craziness in the dominant culture. When we do that, we ourselves get accused of some kind of incoherence or craziness. But plenty of people feel the truth of these sorts of things in their bones, in their everyday lives. Huge numbers of people work jobs that feel meaningless. The majority. It's the vast majority. The majority of people feel trapped in surviving one day at a time, such that they can't really think about their future, their purpose, their true quest in life. Only a minority of people find their jobs engaging, and many of those people might admit on reflection that they have to rationalize a good bit of the meaning of their jobs. Because if they reflected, they could admit their jobs have nothing to do, really, with their own highest values. 
not their highest values. And their jobs have no connection to cultivating things we actually depend on to live. Real living ecologies. Now this part of the start with why theory, this part of the theory's incoherence and our own culture's incoherence, comes out pretty well in the way the start with why theory cites Apple computer as an icon, as a model, as an ideal. And we get the typical propaganda about the mission of this corporation with no reflection on the wisdom of its activity. A friend of mine started a tech company and he hired someone who used to work at Apple. Now, this fellow worked at Apple with a small team of engineers, all well-educated, highly paid. They had a very juicy budget to work with. And their job was to perfect the feeling of the click on the Apple trackpad. Just the feeling of the click, not the functioning of the trackpad, just how the click itself felt. Does that seem like a meaningful job? Now, with all due respect to Apple, this is not a story I investigated. So if anyone from Apple wants to contact me, maybe we could have a conversation about what all the people who work there actually do. So let's call that story hearsay, even though I think we can imagine that somebody does that job. That does not seem crazy, but let's call it hearsay and let's instead consider all those jobs at Apple, this multinational corporation. Let's think about all those highly educated and pretty well-paid people. What would the world be like if all those people with all their creativity and intelligence focused on helping the world? Not indirectly, as if we make the computers and then other people fix the world using our computers. No, but directly. Think if those people helped to restore the soil and to purify the air. Those people could help clean up the oceans, including getting all the plastic out of the oceans and, and thereby saving birds, turtles, countless other beings, including human beings. <laughs> We're getting toxicity from the oceans the mercury, the plastics, that's coming into us too. All those brilliant engineers and thinkers, all those intelligent and creative people, they could save the whales, polar bears, and other species facing extinction. They could rejuvenate populations of wolves, salmon, butterflies, bees. They could help revitalize our economy so we don't have so much injustice and inequality. They could help heal racial injustices. They could help reduce nuclear arsenals. They could help reduce the number of prisons. And we could go on and on at all the things that the people there could do if they weren't busy working on the clicks of mouse pads and other things. Again, it's, it doesn't matter what we're thinking really goes on there. We just know there are huge numbers of bright, talented, intelligent people who are curious and who have fun at learning and they could have a very different kind of why than they do. And the things we're talking about don't require fancy computers. Again, if we're going to rationalize and say, well, they make the computers and then we can go use the computers to clean the oceans. No, we don't need computers to solve the kinds of problems we were just talking about. 
Injustice, inequality, pollution, no. Computers could help, sure, but they're not crucial. No major world problem seems to depend critically on computers in comparison to how critically our problems depend on human beings living up to their own highest values. Working at a major corporation doesn't have any deep connection to our true values. And the slogans we associate with those corporations do no more than help us rationalize the absence of our actual values and the absence of work that feels truly meaningful because it's connected to life and connected to our philosophical and spiritual ideals. So encouraging businesses to start with why empowers corporations to bamboozle us. Because we do want meaning. We do want to feel connected with empowering intentions. And we also want to be connected with reality. We have two things going on there, two aspects to the why. The first has to do with a basic sense of the cosmos, a vision. That's visionary, a vision of what the cosmos is, what we really are. And the second has to do with intention. And our contemplation touches both. These come totally interwoven. But let's just try to keep them a little bit distinct for another moment. On the side of a vision of the cosmos, the why of our economy tells us that we are and have to be capitalists. Now let's not panic. We're not going to simply suggest that socialism has all the answers. In fact, our problem in part has to do with the astonishing limitations in our imagination when it comes to facilitating exchange of goods. We have gotten a consistent message that we either keep the economic system we have or we will plunge ourselves into Stalinism or Maoism. Does that even seem reasonable? Or does it betray the fact that we don't have any compelling reason to keep the system we have. It's quite strange to critique our economic system in the current co context that we live in be because of this reactivity. And it seems remarkably comical. Once we step back and look at it, what a joke. It's as if we either must have Jeff Bezos and people like him, or we must have Stalin or Mao or some kind of nightmare. We either accept that we must have a small number of people who get incredibly wealthy and thus that the vast majority remain poor. We must accept that we can have no democracy in the workplace, that the workplace must be a totalitarian regime with a king at the top who collects all the money, a place where we're told what to wear, when to pee, how fast to run across a warehouse and all the rest, or we are forcing ourselves into a Stalinist Maoist nightmare. If we say that we want to stop renting out our bodies and minds for the enrichment of a very few, if we want to control the means of production, if we want to stop consumerism, if we want meaningful work that actually helps the world, then we supposedly hate America and we want the downfall of democracy.
apparently because we dare to demand democracy, including in our work. On the other hand, if we keep our head down, do what we're told, and if we ensure the extraordinary enrichment of a very small number of people, partly because maybe one day we'll be one of them, this makes us real Americans. That's the indoctrination, because this makes no sense. So therefore, we have to get indoctrinated into it. We have a basic indoctrination that our economy is the best possible system, and it works so well that we all think it's our own idea when we say it. We think that we have reflected and considered the evidence, and so we really believe that this economy is the best possible system. Those who question it, we really believe, they're communists. That's how they're branded in the mainstream. Or if they come from some alternative community, they're attacked on the basis of specious arguments. For instance, if we question capitalism, some people will tell us that we need to work on our abundance mindset, or that we have bad stories about money, or that we don't value ourselves enough to let ourselves become wealthy capitalists. Those who question capitalism with at least some degree of critical thinking, you know, where they can admit that there are problems, it's, it ends up being this funny form of spiritual materialism. It's a particularly humorous and incoherent concept called conscious capitalism. Now, the purveyors of conscious capitalism do seem willing to admit some of the terrible sins of capitalism, but they argue that this has only happened in supposedly unconscious capitalism. Once we become conscious capitalists, our very activity of becoming wealthy will also heal the world, even though that premise lacks coherence. If we would buy into the notion of conscious capitalism, we may as well propose the notion of conscious socialism, and then we find ourselves back at the same basic duality. As for capitalism, it seems important to recognize fundamental errors. Now, the fundamental error of conscious capitalism is that it preserves the basic why of capitalism itself. So we're dealing with what's the core problem, the core why, the basic vision. Any form of capitalism will preserve the basic why of capitalism, the basic vision. And it's a vision in which human beings operate on the basis of self-interest. It's a vision in which we must compete against each other and we must fear one another lest someone take advantage of us. We must protect vast sums of private wealth, we must have private ownership of the means of production, and we must pursue profit. The why of capitalism, fundamentally, is a vision of the basic nature of reality and the basic nature of human beings. That vision, that why of capitalism can, depending on how it's presented, it can seem at first coherent. It can seem cogent and compelling. But on deeper reflection, we find it doesn't fit our own nature or the nature of reality. Now, part of that, it's not our fault. People didn't tell us what our nature was. They just had ideas, notions that seemed to fit this vision of capitalism. We were told that this is just how it is, so we're being realistic. 
And people don't point out to us in our education that capitalism involves a variety of incoherent notions and that it has no rootedness in wisdom, love, and beauty. What an obvious thing. Capitalism is not a teaching from any wisdom tradition, period. And that should really give us pause. It does not come from a wisdom tradition, nor does it come from any insight into the community of life, ecology, justice. No, it's nothing like that. Wisdom has to do with a realization, a deep transformative realization into how things are. Wisdom includes a realization of the interwovenness of all things. But capitalism seeks profit and endless growth in a living interwoven world. That means profit for the capitalist comes at a loss for living ecologies and for workers. We don't get Jeff Bezos without Amazon warehouse workers and factory workers in China. We don't get Jeff Bezos without lots of ecological degradation and large-scale inequality and injustice. That's how capitalism works. The incoherence of capitalism gets one of its finest, clearest expressions in Earth Overshoot Day. That's the day of the year when we have used up all the resources the Earth could provide us in one year. And after that point, we keep taking. We keep taking and taking, taking more than the Earth can regenerate in one cycle, and thus we must steal from our own future. Obviously, we can't run a debt with reality. Debt is a notion from economics, not from ecology. Eventually, a debt with reality catches up with us and there's hell to pay. Indeed, hell is sometimes the only form of payment reality will accept if we go too far down the road of ignorance. We hit overshoot day in the summer usually July or August. That should strike us as totally incoherent. But economic growth now depends on that date's getting earlier and earlier because we have to have growth at all costs. That's the foundation of capitalism. Earth Overshoot Day is only going to get earlier as capitalism gets more successful, empowered by a start-with-why theory. And that's going to mean more and more trouble for us all. Capitalism not only uproots itself from ecological realities, but it uproots us from those realities. A river has its own value, a value for us as living beings, both in terms of enjoying the beauty and the life of the river, and also depending wholly on rivers and other bodies of water for food, for oxygen, and of course, to drink. Water of necessity can belong to no one. But corporations use and pollute water as if they have the right to do whatever they want. Corporations use all manner of resources on the basis of private ownership, on the basis of whatever their agendas are. What all corporations need to survive at their foundation cannot belong to them. 
If we sit with that fact long enough, we come to see the basic incoherence of private capital and the accumulation of huge sums of money and material goods. The surpluses of capitalism ultimately rest on the living ecologies we all depend on. And those ecologies cannot belong to private individuals any more than one human being could be the property of another. The world is interwoven, and the community of life we all depend on both excludes no one and belongs to no one. More than anything, though, I sometimes think the biggest issue is that capitalism has a deluded and magical view of life. In the worst way, when we talk about magical thinking and rational people in the dominant culture like to talk about that, Capitalism is magical thinking par excellence. And of course, the magic is this invisible hand, this magic of Disney notion that some hand comes in, invisibly corrects things. The idea is that the best way to create good in the world is for people to pursue self-interest and material gain. That's fundamental to the why of capitalist activity. And it claims that human beings are fundamentally self-interested, competitive, and ultimately unable to share and cooperate on the basis of genuine altruism and mutual care. But scientific research has demonstrated clearly that human beings can operate on the basis of compassion rather than self-centeredness. We tend to do better when we operate that way on the basis of compassion. Not only does that mere fact overthrow the most basic premise of capitalism, but things get worse for the capitalist vision. Why? Because the compassion science shows that human beings are more rational when operating on the basis of compassion. We're also happier, but we're striking at the heart of capitalist economics. That very finding makes capitalist economics fundamentally incoherent. If we can make more rational decisions on the basis of compassion, then the economic theories that postulate rational self-interest in a capitalist economy now require a paradigm shift. Of course, the finding about happiness is also something that strikes at the heart of the capitalist theory because we're supposedly able to make ourselves happy by pursuing this rational self-interest in the marketplace. But if we instead operate on the basis of compassion, we're just happier already, and we don't need all the material possessions. Now, in reality, this talk of rationality is kind of humorous because capitalism, as it functions in this culture, and probably as it would ever function, doesn't ground itself in rational decisions. It grounds itself in self-centered and emotional ones. All you have to do is take a look at advertising. Capitalists get us to buy things on the basis of fear and desire, not on the basis of wisdom, insight, and a liberated mind. And they sell their products to maximize profit, not to maximize our well-being, not to enhance the conditions of life, or to cultivate wisdom, love, and beauty. Now, 
there's an interesting resonance that we've displayed here, right? We were talking about what's the difference between Wright and Langley, and we said Wright had the right vision. The Wright brothers had the correct vision of what flight was. They had the right vision of reality, and that Langley didn't. He just had the wrong idea. Well, capitalism's got the wrong vision of what a human being is. It says, well, they're self-interested, and then they chase their self-interest, supposedly in a rational way some of the time, and then you know that will make them happy and they'll be good in the world. That's just not the way reality works. We've tested it. It doesn't work that way. So we're talking about how the start with why theory empowers us to go in the wrong direction and gets the story of reality wrong again and again and again. Now let's consider, keeping all that in mind, what the start with why theory says about how Apple Corporation has succeeded so well in selling computers. Now here's the voice of the Apple Corporation according to the start with why analysis. Everything we do, we believe in challenging the status quo. We believe in thinking differently. The way we challenge the status quo is by making our products beautifully designed, simple to use, and user-friendly. And we happen to make great computers. Want to buy one? That sounds kind of nice, doesn't it? I know I took some of the steam out of the propaganda because that's what it is. It's propaganda. The truth we get there, and that start with why analysis, is a truth about manipulation, not about the why of the Apple Corporation, certainly not the true why. Again, it's a truth about propaganda, about what we're told, how we're manipulated. Now let's see if we could make the voice of Apple Corporation more honest. I'm going to be a little cheeky here so that we can get a clear contrast, all right? Everything we do, we believe in the status quo. And we seek to perpetuate and innovate that status quo, often under the sneaky guise of thinking differently. The way we perpetuate the status quo is by perpetuating inequality and ecological degradation. Among other things, we enrich a small number of people by getting a large number of people to buy things that will not fundamentally make them happy, wise, loving, or beautiful. We perpetuate the status quo by getting you to seek meaning and satisfaction in the ownership of our products. We do not grow food. We do not create healthy ecologies. We don't save species. We don't work for peace and justice. We know nothing about how to make you truly happy, wise, loving, and graceful, or how to make the world a peaceful, thriving, healthy, and just place for all of us. But we do make computers and other products. And we do that by degrading ecologies and taking advantage of cheap labor, tax laws, and other facts of the status quo. We want you to crave the latest gadget we have, and eventually the one you have now will be obsolete. We can't bring ourselves to cooperate with anyone to make technology more sensible, ethical, and functional across the market. So instead, we're going to compete with everyone, and since you have to buy this stuff, 
we're going to do everything we can to get you to buy it from us. That includes getting you to associate having our gadgets with things you value, like thinking differently or being some kind of creative rebel, or even helping the world. We don't have to say anything else. We know you'll buy this stuff, even though it's prohibitively expensive for huge numbers of people. We have done our job. Now, isn't that a more truthful depiction of the Apple values? Forgive the cheeky attitude, but first of all, we need a sense of humor when it comes to love wisdom. We also need a sense of reality. We live in a fake ecology. We got cut off from living ecologies, and we got planted into a fake ecology called an economy. If we want to know the origin of fake news and the post-truth landscape, we should look into the fact that we live in a fake landscape called an economy. And dwelling there inevitably means ignorance and deceit will cover over wisdom and truth. Though the ecology is fake, it has a very real apex predator. We call it the corporation. That predator is real, and it feeds off of all of us, not only humans, but it feeds off of the whole world, and it harms countless human and non-human beings. It's not clear if corporations of necessity create harm. It could very well be so. Perhaps in a different context, they wouldn't. But as of now, it seems impossible for even the best corporations to avoid real harms to the world, even if they seek to minimize them. And that holds for Apple, especially in relation to the start with why theory. Now, they might make a decent product. That's not the issue. It was more nuanced than that, even though, yes, we were being a little cheeky there. But let's just consider the start with why theory and how it gets us to think about Apple, how it gets us to think about the success of a lot of corporations. Well, first of all, about Apple in particular, do any of us really value challenging the status quo? Like that's a value. Would we hold that as a value or is it that we have other values that are precious to us, values we revere, and those values might lead us to challenge the status quo. In other words, if the status quo were peace, love, justice, creativity, and in general, a healthy world and a vitalizing culture, would we feel the need to challenge that? Or is it that we value things like peace, justice, love, family, creativity, and so on, and we often find that the status quo we in fact have, including all this propaganda, often blocks those things or even harms them. And therefore, we take on an ethical responsibility to challenge that. Now, is that what Apple stands for? Taking an ethical responsibility on behalf of peace, justice, love, family, creativity, really? I mean, could we seriously believe that Apple is about challenging the status quo in that way? In what sense can we attribute challenging the status quo to Apple. Again, not even saying that that's a real value, but assume that it's good somehow. Why would they earn that as 
something they stand for because they stand for justice or because they made computers in the same spirit as blunders? And is making computers in the same spirit as blunders something we should find admirable? Is making a really nifty gadget, however functional, something we should revere? Apple didn't invent the idea that consumer products will sell better if they look attractive. Not their idea. Apple didn't invent GPS or the internet or anything else essential to an iPhone that makes it such a fun gadget. All those things came, in fact, from public money. Public money, our tax dollars, not anything anyone at Apple did. They did nothing more than perpetuate the status quo, which centrally means to make money however we can. Doing that has long involved a propaganda campaign to get people to seek spiritual and philosophical fulfillment in the ownership of consumer goods and to associate positive values and ideals with particular brands. In reality, none of our highest values can properly manifest in a standard multinational corporation or its products. If we reflect honestly, we sense we can't possibly realize our spiritual or philosophical values in a consumer product. Least of all, a consumer product that comes to life by means of inequality, injustice, and ecological degradation. The suggestion that we could find genuine and meaningful why in a corporation reduces to total incoherence. And a book that places Martin Luther King Jr. in resonance with multinational corporations like Apple and Southwest Airlines, that book should receive ethical criticism. A crucial problem in the dominant culture is that corporations, executives, CEOs, and thought leaders try to tap into the same space of our heart and soul that Martin Luther King Jr. touched. But King invited us to actually live our highest values and ideals. And that means transcending the status quo. King explicitly challenged the economic system we have, while most of our thought leaders seek only to perpetuate that status quo, with zero meaningful practice of our values, with little wisdom in relation to the conditions of life and the community of life we all depend on, no compassion in relation to the majority of beings and the marginalized people in our own society and other societies, no cultivation of beauty beyond the shiny surfaces of their ad campaigns and their largely disposable products. Though some corporations have tried to challenge some of the central aspects of the status quo, the start with why theory largely comes down to a pep talk for the status quo and a strategy to perpetuate the status quo by hijacking and co-opting things that matter to us and getting us to channel our energy into perpetuating the pattern of insanity. In our next contemplation, we'll look into something of profound importance, namely how the why, the real why, once we enter it from the standpoint of the wisdom traditions, how the why can begin to reveal to us the structure of our experience. In thinking about that, we will enter more fully into what the wisdom traditions can teach us about the why of our activity. And indeed, 
the reasons we ultimately cannot start with why, or if we do start with why, what that why must become in order for us to fulfill our potential and help the world. Let's end with a short passage from the philosopher Zhuangzi that captures a core problem of the start with why theory. Zhuangzi writes, Horses' hooves are made for treading frost and snow, their coats for keeping out wind and cold. To munch grass, drink from the stream, lift up their feet and gallop, this is the true nature of horses. Though they might possess great terraces and fine halls, they would have no use for them. Then along comes Po Lo. I'm good at handling horses, he announces, and proceeds to singe them, shave them, pare them, brand them, bind them with martingale and crupper, tie them up in stable and stall. By this time, two or three out of ten horses have died. He goes on to starve them, make them go thirsty, race them, prance them, pull them into line, force them to run side by side. In front of them, the worry of bit and rein, behind them, the terror of whip and crop. By this time, over half the horses have died. Generation after generation sings out in praise, saying, Paul Lowe is good at handling horses. The potter and the carpenter are good at handling clay and wood. And the same fault is committed by the men who handle the affairs of the world. The Start With Why theory empowers us to commit this fault. Under misguided notions, it empowers us to try to handle the world according to some supposedly enlightened agendas. It seems we need to think a little better. We owe it to ourselves, to those we love, and to the world, horses and all. If you have reflections or questions about today's contemplation, send them in at wisdomloveandbeauty.org and we'll address some of them in a future contemplation. Until then, this is Dr. Nikos, your friendly neighborhood soul doctor, reminding you that your soul and the soul of the world are not two things. Take good care of them.